always say the best part of my job is I get to see people come in as a mess and then they get better. They get stronger. They go back out to their lives. They're happier. And there was something very rewarding about watching people be in difficult spots, really struggling and getting stronger and going back out into the world. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Laurel Harlan, who is a clinical social worker. So I did not even know what a clinical social worker was before this episode, and that is the very first thing that we will cover, and it is in the sort of therapy realm. Um, So we'll talk about the differences between a clinical social worker and a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a therapist, all these different things. Um, And then we'll obviously dive pretty deeply into all things uh emotions and uh in your brain and how weird we can be sometimes and how we operate and how you try to help people um, when they're dealing with things like depression, anxiety, things like that, and how we can help ourselves if we are dealing with things like that. At the end of this episode, we'll cover a little bit of Laurel's other business. Laurel owns her own practice. She owns this whole space where other um, different uh, therapists and things work at as well. And then now she's decided to start a whole other business that is completely unrelated. She just decided that she absolutely loves making cookies. So to leave, since some of the uh, the talk during the episode can be a little bit heavy, we leave out talking about cookies and talking about Laurel's awesome cookie business and how you start a second business when you already have another business that already takes up so much of your time. So without further ado, here is Clinical Social Worker. Laurel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me, Blake. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a good place to start would be for you to explain the difference for us between what a licensed clinical social worker does and what, say, a psychologist does or some of the other sort of major roles within the mental health field, like a therapist or a counselor or or whatever it is, because they sound very similar, but they all have totally different titles. And I'm I'm sure that's for a good reason. So why don't you explain kind of what you do and how that's different from other people? Well, I think there is a, there can be a lot of confusion about the different roles or the different educational levels. Um, Psychologists are almost always PhD level and their focus in study can contain lots about testing. Um, and again, it just, it's a more disciplined, if you will, longer term educational level to try to get to that. A psychiatrist is an MD, is a doctor who is actually specialized in mood disorders, um, illnesses of the brain, and being able to prescribe medications. Interestingly enough, psychiatrists often don't get a lot of educational background in doing counseling. So psychiatrists don't primarily do counseling. They just do medication. Social workers often are, um, we have what we call our terminal degree at a master's level. You can get a PhD in social work. Those social workers tend to go on to academic pursuits and teaching and research. So the difference in the backgrounds 
is really in the focus. So for psychology, it's often on the individual and what's going on with the individual in social work, which is one of the reasons I liked it and wanted to do it, is it looks at the individual within the family, within the community. So it has a much broader approach. And really, psychology and or social work can do counseling, research, um, work in different venues, such as hospitals, schools. It really depends on how you specialized. Now, would that be a little bit of a difference between then a licensed clinical social worker and if someone just goes and sees a therapist? Like, oh, I'm going to see my therapist today. And that, that therapist might have some different licenses. But typically, it's you wouldn't see a therapist working in like a school or a hospital or something like that. You wouldn't necessarily consider them a therapist. I think a therapist is more where the focus is really on the counseling. If you're a medical social worker or a medical, even if you're a psychologist, you have different skill sets and you have different um, job descriptions, different things you need to do. You're going to be interacting with patients and families, and and that's true in schools, too. So it's, it's a different focus. When someone's a therapist, the credentials may be different. Because, again, you can see a therapist, and they should be licensed. <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully, right? They're, not, good, they're just, yeah. like, write the word therapist yeah. on their wall, right. and that was that. Yeah, don't be hanging out a shingle, and you got actually no background. Um, so they should be licensed in their profession, and then the focus is really on the counseling services. Okay. Um, and then I assumed, to what you were saying about psychiatrists being MDs who prescribe medication, that for yourself, um, for psychologists, for uh, for therapists that if if you get a particularly i don't want to i don't want to say bad patient um but a patient that i guess it it looks like their depression isn't isn't just mental that, that there's like something chemically happening here then is there a lot of like i guess referrals that happen from these other departments into psychiatry to hey this patient i believe maybe need maybe need some medication you need to speak with them Yes, I, there sh- there should be, and I think if you got a good therapist and you got a good psychiatrist, they often are working as a team, uh, because often people come in and I can begin to work with them, and in pretty short order, I can tell this is not just psychological. There's a biological piece to it, and the biology piece needs to be treated, and that needs to be handed off to a psychiatrist. Then the psychiatrist and I may often be in consultation with each other about how the person's doing, how they're responding to the medication, what if there's a crisis going on in his or her life, you know, we both need to know about that. I, I, it's like I always say the left hand needs to know what the right hand's doing yeah. for us to be a team together. But yes, often those cases need to be handed off so they can get some medical attention. So that is fascinating. I would love to know more about how you can tell, uh, how you said in pretty short order, you can usually tell if this is purely like a mental thing or if it's something more um, because I think a lot of us struggle with that in our own lives uh, not just with mental things but like physical things if somebody it could be as silly as someone trying to figure out if they should be eating like gluten-free or something like that and it's like oh I've been having like a lot of stomach aches lately and it's like well you don't really know what the cause of that is and you know you're trying to get to the bottom of it so how is it that you are able to to tell and understand if something is just mental for someone or if there's something more there? Really in working with them, when people come into counseling and let's say they're depressed, they've been having a hard time in life, they're not coping, 
there's very little joy they may be experiencing. Maybe they've begun to socially isolate themselves. They're kind of shutting down. They're, they're still functioning. I always say it's like a low-grade fever. You know, you still get up, you feed your kids, you take them to school, but you just feel terrible the whole time. Well, that's what a low-grade depression can feel like. You're still functioning. You're going to work, but you're not happy. You don't really feel any joy in your life. So once a person comes into counseling and we begin to explore the issues, what's going on, what's happening, having them talk through things, People begin to respond to that. They start to feel better. They start to make some changes. They uh, maybe they sleep better. They notice they're concentrating better. They're going back to some of their old hobbies or the things they enjoy. The people around them will begin to notice a difference. And then I have people who come in, and maybe we've been working for maybe even several months, and I just see the person still really struggling. I just had a case um, this week where the person came in and she really was working. She was trying to implement the things we were talking about, but it really wasn't changing much. And in that situation, I did refer her to a psychiatrist because it became evident to me this this really has a biological piece that has to be treated. Mm. So if they don't respond to the counseling part, because really counseling and medication work on the brain in different ways. So you need sometimes you need, and the research shows, you know, people generally do the best with both, with both the counseling and the medication. And then what about a physical piece to this? Like you, you mentioned depression, and then I, I feel like it, and we'll, we'll tackle both of these more later in the interview, but anxiety and depression, I feel like, are the two major things that obviously yeah. everyone feels at some point in their lives. So uh, to the point of like, is this is this me just feeling some anxiety right now or is depression right now or is this like a deeper problem? Um, I find and I think pretty much everyone finds or I should say most people, I, sh- I shouldn't say everyone, uh, that when I get out there and I start like exercising a lot more immediately, I just calm down. Like I feel less depressed. I feel less anxious. Like all of all of that starts kind of washing away. Uh is that, I imagine, like a recommendation for you with a lot of people? And are there some people that even don't respond to that? Like they start exercising a lot and that's, that still isn't calming things down for them. Yes, you could see that. And yes, exercise. I always say to people, exercise is one of the best things you can do for your brain. If nothing else, just go for a 20-minute walk and that will help your brain tremendously. Yeah. When somebody's really depressed, they will often, what they will say to you is, I can't do it. I mean, I don't have the energy. Just the thought of trying to get out of my chair and go to the gym just overwhelms me. Mm. And they can't, it's not even necessarily that they lack the motivation. It's just like almost an energy thing. They can't, it's like they just can't do it. Yeah. Uh, and that's when, again, that there's probably a biological, there's a medical piece that needs to be treated with that. Yeah, for sure. It's very interesting. And it's also gone on longer, Blake. I mean, everybody's got, Everybody has a lousy day or a lousy week or maybe even a lousy month. But when it keeps going on and and it's really begun to impair you, so your the quality of your life goes down. Again, you might still be functioning, but the quality of your life is now not as good. That, yeah. That's what I look for that's really going to allow me to help diagnose it as a clinical depression. Yeah, for sure. 
it's man it's so interesting it just makes me think back on different times in my own life and what you were just saying like maybe maybe a day maybe a week maybe a month or whatever Mm -hmm, and uh, i've i've had periods of time for even longer than that when maybe i've had like a lot of anxiety and stuff and there's there's part of me during those times which then i i guess i i wonder what your thoughts are on this or, or how people should talk to themselves with things like this where I almost like wonder if this is the new me. Like at first I'm like, oh, I can't wait till I get back to quote unquote myself, you know? And then after it goes on for a long period of time, I'm just like, maybe this, maybe there is no my old self. Like maybe this is how I just am now. Like maybe I'm just kind of more of an anxious person. And then sure enough, like eventually it comes back around. But um, I feel like there are parts of our personalities that that do change over time. So I guess how do we know uh, like if, if maybe we're just changing and this, this is kind of how we operate now. Well, I think that's a good question because you have to remember that, you know, both depression and anxiety are illnesses. So, you know, you can live a, a portion of your life and not be anxious and not be depressed, just like you could live a portion of your life and not be diabetic. And then for whatever reason, the switch gets flipped and the illness kicks in, it shows up. And so, yeah, I think that that's that's a possibility that you weren't anxious and then you began to develop it. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah, that's a distinct possibility. Yeah, which I guess then is why you should then go and see someone like you or or get out and exercise a ton or something is to at least try to determine, is this a real possibility or do I just actually need to speak to someone like Laurel? And that's all that it boils down to. Well, again, I think that if you really have become anxious enough, because everybody worries, everybody has anxiety, but does it interfere with your life? And I also think, are you walking around afraid all the time? Because there are people who live what I call a fear-based life. So they're walking around afraid all the time. It's just going to be whatever the next bad thing is. It's like waiting for the other shoe to drop, Mm. as that saying goes. Right. Um, so it's not just because, at work that they're anxious or something, or it's not just at home. It's like truly just all the time. Yeah. Yeah. About almost everything. <laughs> wow, man. Yeah. That, that is a definite, a definite differentiator. I I've, I've definitely never felt like that. That sounds terrible. Right. Not well. I think it's good. You've never felt like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I'd love to know if you notice any sort of trends. Uh, so you have been a licensed clinical social worker for quite a while. Um, and I I think that there is a lot of talk right now about the impact of, let's say, social media on us or the impact of a 24 hour news cycle on us and, and and things like that. And like, are they, are they hurting us in, in some way? Have you noticed any sort of difference in the patients that you see now versus when you first started before everyone had an iPhone in their hand and stuff? Um, and are, are there kind of like different trends in the, in the types of problems that you see or the people that you see? I, I loved that you asked that question because it really made me stop and think about that. I want to say yes and no. On one level, I think the population that I work with are what I call your garden variety, walking wounded, walking well, however you want to term it. They're people who have underlying problems. Again, for the most part, they are functioning very well in their lives. You know, they're making their car payments. They're taking their kids to school. They're married. You know, they just they just have this sort of average 
these problems that they need to deal with. Um, and sometimes that's underlying trauma, things that happened from their past. I don't think that has changed in 37 years of practicing. I see that just, it shows up slightly differently, but that's what a lot of people just deal with um, in their lifetime. That being said, I do see that social media has changed things. We now see things that didn't exist, let's say even 15 years ago. Um, Addiction to gaming, uh, addiction to pornography, addiction to Facebook, uh, affairs that start through Facebook. I mean, affairs can have all kinds of ways of starting, but this is another venue. This is another way that this shows up. Right. Uh, ha- you know, having more intimate relationships on Facebook than you do with the person sitting across the breakfast table from you. Um, so I think technology has really impacted how the problems play out, if that makes sense. It totally it- makes sense. That's so interesting. It's like just another outlet for yeah. our possible yeah. negative selves to come out or like the, the negative part of the human condition to to sort of play itself out because like yeah. all, all those things you mentioned except for the affair part which is an emotional piece but it's like a lot of that is addiction related and it's like so if these people you know were living 60 years ago maybe they all just would have become alcoholics one day or something who knows <laughs> you know like but well, yeah. it, you know mm-hmm. they fracture off into all these different things like oh i'm really into porn oh i'm really into gaming and it's like yeah you know, uh, who, or maybe they would have, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they never would have become an alcoholic and they never would have been addicted to anything, but now this thing's here and, you know, who knows? Exactly. You know, another interesting, and I, I, I mean, I laugh, but I don't know if it's necessarily funny, but when you ask this question, what I thought about was the fact that, so after the election in 2016, I had more people showing up in my office with the election as a presenting problem. That's pretty funny, yeah. It was very interesting. And it wasn't just me. I mean, my colleagues and I um, in our staff meetings would talk about the number of different people who were coming in and reporting, feeling anxious, being very upset about how things had gone, the state of the world. I had clients I hadn't seen in, I think, one a decade who came back in for several sessions because she really needed to talk about um, how she felt about the election. And that really threw people into a state, a very anxious state for most of them. For some people, it came out as being angry, but most of them were anxious. So I think it's more the propensity of the human brain to lead, to lean in that direction. And then they're just different outlets are different ways the anxiety can get activated god that's such a good point i always i always forget about that our old caveman selves and that there's a part of us that's just supposed to be anxious to keep us alive absolutely that's so funny Um, saber tooth tiger is gonna jump out any minute (laughs) yeah exactly right um all right so i would love to know a little bit more about you and your decision to become a, a clinical social worker um and, and maybe we can kind of help some other people listening make decisions if they're thinking about going into um, sort of the mental health field. So what made you want to become a licensed clinical social worker? And did you consider at the time taking any of the other paths in the mental health field? And, and kind of like, why did you land on, on licensed clinical social worker? Well, 
two, when I thought about this question, when you sent it to me, I thought one is I have this very distinct memory of being 15 and I had a best friend and her grandmother came and picked us up, taking us to school, which she would do routinely. We got to the stop where the grandmother would drop us off and my friend couldn't get out of the car. She, at the time, I didn't understand what was going on at the time. In hindsight, I understand she was having a panic attack. She couldn't breathe. She was hyperventilating. She could barely talk. You know, the grandmother said, go on, get out of the car. You go to school. I'll take care of her. And I remember just trudging up the hill to school thinking there's got to be a way to help people like this. There's got to be a way to help people. And I think that was such a impact on me. Um, I'm sure I just kind of put it away, but I remember it as a very distinct memory. And then really the other one was when I went out into the field when I was doing my internship and started working with people and started actually doing counseling where I thought, this is what I need to be doing. This, This is it. I mean, I love this. And there kind of was no turning back from that. When I researched, when I made the decision, I'd been in public libraries, actually, for five years, working in public libraries. Um, so I decided to go back to graduate school. I knew I didn't want to become a librarian, and I began to research what I wanted to do. At the time, in the public library, I was actually working in their outreach department, and I was working with senior citizens. I was delivering books to shut-ins, to nursing homes, um, you know, sitting with with the elderly, talking to them. And so I really thought I wanted to go into gerontology and work with the elderly. And so I researched getting a PhD. I went, I'm in Columbia, Missouri. So I went to the University of Missouri and actually talked to people in the psychology department and kind of interviewed different professors and checked out whether I thought I could do that. And then I looked into There's also a master's degree in um, voc rehab. I looked at that. And then I also talked to the people in social work. And again, to me, social work just spoke to me. I liked the approach. I liked the idea that you were the holisticness of it, that you were looking at the individual within the family, within the community, and that all of these parts fit together. And that that's what really drew me to social work was Mm. Just that approach, and then once I got into social work and I started doing the counseling there, I never, I never went into gerontology. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned when you very first even got to dip your toes in it and and first doing counseling that you loved it. Why? Why is that? Like, what made you love it? Boy, that's a. Why did I love it? There was something about it that really just sparked. My brain, as my sister would say to me, there was a way that I could interact with people. There was a way I could listen to people. Um, I intuitively knew how to pick up information and how to use that effectively with them. And really, also what was rewarding was the fact that people would take that. I, I always say the best part of my job is I get to see people come in as a mess and then they get better. They get stronger, they go back out to their lives, they're happier. And there was something very rewarding about watching people be in difficult spots, really struggling and getting stronger and going back out into the world. Yeah, definitely. 
So I would imagine that the push and pull, like like the other side of that coin, like you said, is people come in and they're a mess. So there's this great part that the 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 happy good part of the job is that you get to help these people. The sort of negative side of that is these people come in and they are a mess. And I don't know how that cannot weigh on you. I don't know how how you cannot like go home and not become an alcoholic yourself. Just just like trying to like <laughs> handle everything that you went through that day. Um, I guess talk about that a little bit and like your ability even even then um, to kind of cope with with all of the problems that you're hearing all day every day. Again, this is another one of those very distinct memories for me. So when I when I was doing my internship, I was at an agency. I was doing counseling. Um, I mean, it's really almost like a job you do it for as an internship. And I remember leaving one night, walking out to my car and saying to myself, if you cannot leave this here, then you have to get out. You have to stop now. And So I needed to figure out ways that I was going to separate myself um, from my clients' problems because they aren't my problems. And I can help, I can comfort, I can be supportive, I can direct them toward resources, I can confirm for them what their feelings are, their intuitions. But in the end, it's not my problem. It's theirs. It belongs to them. I often think, I always make the analogy, it's like a broken bone. You know, if you go into the doctor's office and you have a broken bone, the doctor can't mend it for you. That's really up to you and your body to do that. Now, the doctor can help. The doctor, you know, can make a splint, can treat it, but I can't fix what's broken. When someone comes in to see me, I can't fix that. I am not that powerful. But I certainly can help them and aid them in being able to mend themselves. So you just made like fireworks go off in my brain, Laurel. <laughs> what what you just said about getting to your car and just saying to yourself, like, as much as I like this thing, I have to stop if I can't do this. Um, yes. So I have recently started uh, day trading on the side and it's terrifying and I'm learning a ton. <laughs> Um, and I am making money so far because I'm very careful with what's called stop losses. So anyone that's ever traded before, a way that you try to make sure that you're not going to like lose all of your money is you put in what's called a stop loss on an order. So if you buy a stock at $100, you say, if this stock were to go down to $90, just sell it immediately. So when you do that, you kind of take your... Uh, mental tendencies to be like, oh, I swear it's going to go back up. And then it keeps going to 80. And I swear it's going to go back up. And it keeps going to 70. It's like, well, I sold it at 90. It's all good. Maybe I didn't want to sell it at 90, but I put in this stop loss to stop my losses. And it's like, that's exactly what you did mentally with yourself is like a stop loss. So like, if you were not able to do that, that really could have negatively impacted your life and, and, and had all these other negative ramifications if you don't put in this like mental stop loss for yourself. And then I just think about how, what a good concept that is for so many things in life. Like if you're in a relationship, if you have whatever your job is or whatever, if it's like, okay, like this thing is my stop loss. Like if I can't get over this problem right here, I need to consider that the stop loss because it could 
We could be going down to one dollar with this. <laughs> we're, we're still at ninety dollars <laughs> with this job. We could be going down to one dollar. So yeah. I need to stop it when it's at ninety and just leave and and set whatever that point is for yourself. It's just such an unbelievably wonderful idea for uh, like life analysis. Oh, absolutely. Because you're right. Because in the end, I mean, all of these things we're talking about could be detrimental and draining and hurt you. And then they don't actually end up helping you. They actually end up hurting you. I always say that about taking or caring about people. It's like on there's a line and on one side of the line. It's like, that's a really good thing, and we should all be doing it to some degree. But there's a line, and you cross it on the other side of the line, it'll kill you. Yeah. In all honesty, I mean, it will kill you to try to take care of or care about too many people. And you have to figure out where that line is for yourself. Yeah. God, that's got to be hard. Um, All right. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. So I know you have uh, kind of three different styles of treatment that are your preferences. Like, there's a lot of different sort of schools of psychology and and, Uh and therapy and ways to treat. Um, If you maybe, you don't have to give the exact like terms and names of of, uh, like the general schools of psychology and what they are and stuff like that. But if you just want to talk a little bit about what the different preferred styles of treatment you have are in just sort of general terms and then how, how you decide how you are going to treat a patient. In terms of uh, like choosing what type of therapy you want to use on a patient, does that change if that patient has anxiety versus depression? Or does it change depending on how bad the anxiety is, you might be using one versus the other? Or does it change on the person themselves? Like this person seems like they would respond really well to this type of therapy. So it doesn't really matter what their uh, presenting condition is. I'm going to treat them with this because of who they are. Well, let me think about this. I, I think that, yes, there are different schools of thought about how you work with people. I, uh, this is sort of layman's terms, if you will. When I meet with clients, I talk about the fact that what I do is what I call head and heart, that you want your head and your heart communicating with each other. You you want those two synced up together. And that so that some of what we're going to do is work on their thought processes, which is more in the cognitive field um, of, of counseling. And some is we're going to have to process and talk about emotions and what's going on emotionally. Many times people come to me and they don't have a very good grasp on what they are feeling. They can't tell me what they're feeling. Um, they just have never learned that language. And so that's a part of what we have to focus on. And I, But I also think at the heart of it, I, I don't think that I change much as a person. I, I don't know, if, again, if that makes sense. But it's. I think how I work with people probably stays pretty much the same regardless of what the person is presenting with. Now, do I work more cognitively if we're talking about anxiety and their self-talk? Probably I do. If it's depression, am we are we formulating more treatment plans about what they're going to do to take care of themselves and it's more action-based and maybe behavioral-based? Yes, probably. So I do look at what's going on with the person, but me and who I am and how I interact 
that probably doesn't change drastically. It's interesting to hear you say that because I wonder how much of that is how long you've been doing it and just having a high level of emotional intelligence and things like that. So it's like you don't you don't consider the fact that you're treating this person in this way or the different ways that you're vacillating uh, with a patient because it's it's completely second nature to you and it's like you just using your innate emotional intelligence your and your innate intelligence with all these different abilities that it just happens it just flows out of you it's not like okay and now we move on to this phase and now we're changing over to this thing over here there's probably truth to that because again i have been doing this for a long time and so yes a lot of this i really have incorporated into me and into how i work with people and i just know yes this kind of works when people are anxious or this thing works when people are really depressed or this is what you do when somebody has a lot of trauma so i know how to pull on all those educational uh experiences i've had or again whatever i've been taught and i just have integrated those into myself right and then there's no need to slap a label on it it just it is what it is I also think, and I and I talk about this when clients come to see me the very first time, I talk about how one of the reasons therapy is really helpful has a lot to do with the therapist's style. And sometimes it's a good match and sometimes it's not. And really by the third session as the client, you're going to know whether this is a good match for you. It, it should feel like the therapist understands you, they're, they get it. They're empathizing, um, but also that they're holding you accountable. They're asking hard questions. It should feel safe. It should feel like you can talk about whatever you need to talk about. But I don't ever want my clients to get too comfortable because if they get too comfortable, it means I'm not doing my job. I am not asking hard enough questions yeah. for them. It's it's interesting. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I've, I've had a, a couple other sort of therapy-related Uh, professions on the show and they've all said that exact same thing Uh, i've talked to other therapists outside of the show they've all said the same thing of like there's there is a little bit of almost like a dating aspect to it like like you your therapist has to be right for you and if and if they're not they could be like the smartest therapist in the world and great at what they do but it you should probably go see a different therapist and by the way, that doesn't mean they're a bad therapist because they weren't right for you or that, you know, like that you shouldn't yes. refer somebody else to them or whatever. Like we're all just people and and, and personality matching is a, is a real thing. Yeah. And, and boy, if there's one thing I'd want people to one of the things I'd want people to take away from this discussion, it is if you go to a therapist and it doesn't feel like it's a good match, don't give up. Find another one. And if that one's not a good match, find another one. Because sooner or later, you will hit on one that's the right person for you to work with. Mm-hmm. And it's more important for you to get help than it is to say, well, I went to therapy once and I went three sessions and it didn't help any. Yeah. Keep trying. Yeah. Um, Laurel, let's uh, give people and myself <laughs> some advice here. I would love it if you could give us some techniques that can help us through times of anxiety in our lives and some techniques that can help us through times of depression in our lives outside of going and seeing a therapist. <laughs> this is going to sound very simplistic, and it is to some degree, but the best thing you can do is breathe. Just breathe. Because when people get really anxious, they stop breathing. You're only breathing from about the top 30 of your lungs. So one of the very first things you can do if you notice you're getting anxious is 
take some deep breaths, try to slow yourself down. There is a simplicity to it, but just because something is simple doesn't actually make it easy. I think actually learning to breathe and slow yourself down takes a lot of practice and you have to be very deliberate about trying to slow yourself down. It's so funny, Laurel, how I was just saying that a lot of other people have said that. The last therapy-related person that I had on the show uh, was a woman who specializes, she sees patients with OCD, but then she also specializes in emotional regulation. And in the emotional regulation episode, I asked her tips to just help us with emotional regulation. And that was her, like, the tip was like the biggest tip was she's like, I want you to put, if you're sitting in a chair and like one leg's up and whatever, she's like, put both of your feet on the floor and just breathe, for God's sake, just breathe. And that's great that that's also your piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Just just try to get back in your body. Because again, when you're in anxiety, I always say you're 20 miles down the road. You are imagining the horrible, terrible monster that is coming your way. And you are, you're not actually in your body you're, to really process what's going on and what do I need to do and how can I take care of myself. I think the other part that, that I don't I guess this is a technique, but is really learning how to pay attention to your self-talk. What are you saying to yourself? Because that, you know, you can sit and start thinking about something you are afraid of or makes you anxious. And in very short order, your body is going to start to respond to that. Your heart rate will go up, your blood pressure will go up. The blood's going to go to your major organs because it's going to be trying to protect you. And it's all responding to thoughts. There's nothing happening, but you just thinking about it gets the body going. So really paying attention to what are you telling yourself? How are you thinking about this? Because that's going to make a huge difference in both how you feel and how you cope with it. Mm, For sure. That makes me think of... uh of a journal that I do called the five minute journal. Are you familiar uh-huh. with the five minute journal? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I love that thing. And, and so for people that don't know what it is, it's uh, a little five minute journal that you do. Uh, it takes like maybe four minutes in the morning and like one minute in the evening. But in the, in the morning portion, like you say three things that you are grateful for. Uh, then you say like three things that you would like to accomplish that day. And then you give yourself some sort of positive affirmation. Like, um, I am a loving person or like I am brave. Let's say because let's say you're not feeling brave. Let's say you're feeling scared. It's like a good thing to just say like I am brave, you know? Yeah. And uh, it just makes me think if someone was dealing with some of the things that you're talking about, how good it would be not only to have a journal like that, but depending on the severity of it, like you're saying to be cognizant of how your what your self-talk is like and the thoughts that are going through your head to maybe like set an alarm on your phone and just have a journal period or like a sheet of paper and do it like every couple hours, just like right back on the sheet of paper. Like I am brave. And it's like, maybe then your thoughts slip again for two more hours and you're feeling terrified. But then every two hours you got your alarm and you got to write down on this piece of paper. Like, Nope, I'm brave. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, you, you got to help train the brain to have different thoughts. Yeah. You know, most of these neuropathways are well-worn. And I always say the brain's lazy. It wants to take the easy thought process, even if they know it doesn't work. The brain still wants to do that. Right. So, yes, that's part of what you're doing there is you're helping the brain form new neuropathways. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, because your brain has 
has also like a confirmation bias to a certain extent. So the same way oh, yeah. that like if you're <laughs> if you're thinking these negative thoughts, your brain wants to then confirm it. So it looks for it looks for ways to confirm the negative thoughts. If you're every couple hours writing down something, even if you don't believe it at first, if every couple hours you're writing down this positive thing on the sheet of paper, eventually, hopefully your brain's actually going to start looking for times it can confirm that thing. Um, yeah. Which would be yeah. which would be good. As I'm, I think I'm going to start doing that. I, I just like thought of an idea that I want to start doing. Um, good. <laughs> I won't charge you for that. Uh, that was extra. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, all right. So I would love to know how being a licensed clinical social worker has changed you as a person. So how do you feel like you are different now than you were like 40 years ago? I think one of the ways it's really helped me is that I do have a lot of compassion for people. I really realize now everybody's got a story. Everybody has wounds. Everybody's got scars. Even though on the outside they can look like they're doing fantastic and they're getting all the breaks in the world, that person can be full of grief and pain and shame and trauma on the inside. And so it's it's really allowed me to be more compassionate with people. I think the other thing it's really taught me is also how to set better boundaries, how to be able to separate myself. I mean, that kind of goes back to when I talked about needing to figure out how not to take my clients' problems home, how to have an, an emotional separation from my clients, to be emotionally present, but not taking it on. And so... That, that's learning how to have emotional boundaries with people, to be separate from other people's emotions, and then learning how to have boundaries in all other kinds of ways in my life, being able to say yes to things or no to things. I think another really important thing I've learned is how not to take things personal, to really understand that there, there's so much going on with people that has nothing to do with me. I'm not causing it. I'm not the the reason they are suffering in some way or they're upset or they're angry it might be being directed at me and i have to figure out how i'm going to handle it but i don't have to pick that up and put it inside and feel really yucky about myself and take something personal and i think being a therapist has has helped me learn that over and over again man those are great great lessons um all right so Let's say that after hearing those lessons, someone would like to learn them for themselves and, and all of this sounds great to someone and they would like to be able to help other people. What advice would you give to someone that would like to become a licensed clinical social worker? <laughs> the very first thing I would honestly ask is why? <laughs> why do you want to do that? Um, and not being mean about it it's more what's what drives you to do it because if what you want is to rescue people if what you want is somehow if you feel guilty or responsible for other people that you need to fix things you need to make things better that those are all lousy reasons to become a social worker uh, they will actually get you in trouble is what's going to happen. I, I have been in the past an adjunct professor at the University of Missouri School of Social Work. And I would often say to my students, if you want to if you want to be a really good social worker, work on yourself first. Put time and effort into making you mentally healthy and then you can help all kinds of people. 
So that would be the reason, you know, kind of what I'd say first is why do you want to do this? Because um, you're not doing it for the money, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> that ain't there. But, yeah. you know, again, just to look at, kind of look inside yourself and really try to understand what's, what's my motivation for wanting to do this. That's great advice. Um, all right, Laurel. So that's pretty much it for the licensed clinical social work piece. But before we sign off, uh, you have an awesome side business, another like full-blown business that I would love to tell people about. Uh, because I just think it's so awesome. So you have a cookie company called Kiss Me Cookies that, uh, well, first of all, just tell everyone about it. Tell everyone about this cookie company that you started because I think it's wonderful. <laughs> well, the story, the, the way the story goes is when my daughter was pregnant, I made, um, we did a baby shower for her and it was a Dr. Seuss. And so I thought it would be so much fun to make redfish, bluefish for this baby shower. So I looked up recipes for sugar cookies. I read a little bit about how to decorate sugar cookies and I made redfish bluefish and I loved it from the very first redfish bluefish. It just, again, sparked something in my brain. And so then I started reading about decorating sugar cookies. I started discovering blogs. I discovered a whole world of cookie decorators out there and all the things that have been written, I discovered YouTube. I just kept teaching myself and teaching myself different techniques for how to decorate sugar cookies, really how to make them look like little pieces of works of art is what I try to do. And then, so I've been doing that for a number of years and then decorating cookies can be kind of expensive. And actually my daughter uh, and one of her friends I approached them and said, what do you think about, you know, maybe doing a business? And both of them actually have small businesses of their own. And they were so supportive, kind of helped me, even though I'd been running a business for 30 some odd years, they talked about what they'd learned and helped me look at marketing and really encouraged me. And so I just kind of stepped off the edge. I decided I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do this. At the time, I'd also cut back my clinical practice. I was, and still I am, only working three days a week. So I had some time that I really felt like I needed to do something with. And this was so different than the counseling. It was such a creative outlet for me. And it just, I, it's just different than what I do every day in terms of listening to people's problems. So that's kind of how it got started. And so what I do is I take custom orders. I decorate. I just did cookies last weekend for a 50th wedding anniversary. Christmas was a big, obviously, lots of orders. Christmas time for decorated sugar cookies. Yeah, I mean, uh, your I business is popping up. Just so people like we, we had to postpone this interview by like a while <laughs> because of how many cookie orders you were getting. <laughs> right. I was like, Blake, I can't do this. Yeah, right. This cookie thing is going crazy. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just so inspirational and awesome to me because you, it, I mean, you said like, oh, well, you know, I've, I've cut down to only counseling three days a week. But just so everyone knows, it's like, A, you're counseling three days a week, but then B, you also, uh, run like the office in which you work so it's like other people kind of independently run their businesses within your business and stuff if i'm understanding it correctly and but anyway so it's like you're you're already like your own independent business owner just as a as a sole proprietor of your counseling and then you're this other business owner as like of this whole counseling office thing and then to take on this it's like 
it's i don't know i just think it's really inspirational and also just super awesome to take on something so lighthearted and fun when what you do for a living uh you know can be a little bit heavy and and I, and I, in all honesty too i am not relying upon the cookies for a my income so again i can do the cookies i can do as many cookies or as few cookies as i want to and that also has given me so much freedom cuz i'm not depending on this as a way to produce income for me. I, w- I want the cookies to pay for themselves. I want them to allow me to go to different cookie workshops or trainings or conferences. You'd be amazed at how many different cookie, <laughs> cookie conferences. Yeah. Uh, and it does that. And that's what I want it to do. But I think it's also just the creativity it's given me that's so different. But the feeling about the two professions for me is pretty much the same. I love both of them. I love, I still love, even after 37 years, I still love what I do. I love helping people, but now I have found this whole other passion that I'm kind of thinking I'm going to take that into my retirement. There will come a point where I'm going to stop working with clients, but I'm thinking I'm going to take the cookies into retirement with me. Yeah, for sure. I like that. Um, all right. Well, we are going to save a few cookie-related questions for uh, the bonus Patreon content. We will go ahead and wind this thing down. If you could please uh, uh, finish us off by just telling anyone where they can find your cookie business, and if they wanted to like place an order with you or something like that. I don't know sure. if, if you're at the point where you can like send these around the country and everything, or, or what. Where I we're can't at. actually under Missouri uh, cottage laws. I cannot ship. Ah, so damn you, government! Oh, what a bummer! What a yeah. bummer! But if you want to look at my wonderful little cookies, you can find me on Facebook and it's Kiss Me Cookies. I'm in Columbia, Missouri, and I'm also on Instagram. And my Instagram account is Kiss Me Cookies Como. And that's how you'll find me. I don't actually have a website. If you want to look up the counseling business, uh, it does have a website and it's Human Dynamics. You can Google it, Human Dynamics Columbia, Missouri, or humandynamics.net. Cool, yeah, and I'll put links to all this stuff on the show notes on the uh, for okay, this episode thanks. on the Half Hour Intern page so people can find any of that stuff. And uh, that is all I got for you. Laurel, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You are welcome, Blake. Thank you for asking me. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.